Crossings Audio Archive, The Book of Esther, Winter 2017, Part 8. I'm having a blast in the Book of Esther. Um, what an exciting book to be able to look at and see how God uh, delivers His people and takes care, takes care of His own. It's just an amazing story. Uh, the Book of Esther starts with a guy named King Xerxes. This is the, this is the king uh, that was in the movie 300. Uh, and it's kind of a psychopath, really was. Did some awful things. Uh, if you read uh, up on him in secular history, you find that he was an irrational, quick-tempered guy that loved to drink, which brings us kind of to chapter one of this story. Uh, king Xerxes is throwing a 180-day party celebrating his kingdom. And uh, there was a lot of drinking going on. At the end of this 180-day party, I know some of you have some stories from your past. How many have ever had a 180-day party? Right? Not many of us. Um, but he had a seven-day party to cap that one off with the officials in the capital of Susa. And it says, when they were in merry spirits, i.e. when they were drunk, when they were high in spirits, um, they... The king said, let's bring king, Queen Vashti out so we can admire her in her crown. We suspect that there were some more salacious things going on than that. Some commentators even said that she come out only in her crown. Whatever was going on there, Queen Vashti said, not this girl. I'm not that kind of girl. Not going to do it. In our very first week, we talked about guys. Uh, this objectification of women, we don't do that. We're godly dudes. And since then, Harvey Weinstein has come out and all these other things. I thought that amazing. But they decide because Queen Vashti won't go along with this, uh, they're like, look, we got to fire her from being queen because if she doesn't obey you, no one else in this whole kingdom is going to obey their husbands. And we're going to have real problems. So they fired Queen Vashti. Vashti's out. And in chapter 2, they start a beauty contest to find a new queen. And this young lady named Esther wins. She's a Jewish girl that's an orphan being raised by her cousin Mordecai. She is the winner of the beauty contest. Chapter 3, we're introduced to this guy named Haman. Haman is an evil dude. He hates, hates, hates Mordecai. Hates his guts. Hates him so bad, he not only wants to kill Mordecai, he wants to kill every Jewish person in the known world. He wants to wipe them all out. Devises a plan to have that done. Chapter 4, Mordecai learns of this plan and goes to her cousin, which is now queen, and says, hey, you've got to help us. You have to go to the king and stop this evil plan. And she says, whoa, 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 who am I? I haven't seen the king in 30 days, and if I just go into the king uninvited, I could die. Only if he extends the golden scepter. How many guys would love that power? You can speak now. Some guys may think they have that power. You're only delusional men. And she says, I could die. And he says, maybe you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe you're only here to ask this favor. Maybe all your life is for God's glory right here, right now. This is why you're on the planet. That gets through to her and she says, okay, if I die, I die. I'm going for it. Tell everybody to pray. She does. She goes for it. 
Meanwhile, Haman is hating Mordecai more and more and wants to destroy him. We talked about the king that had the, the dream in the middle of the night that can't sleep. He reads the chronicles of what's happening, their history. He finds out Mordecai needed to be rewarded for saving his life one day. And when Haman walks in, instead of asking to impale him on a pole that he set up, the king says, hey, take Mordecai out. This He didn't know he wanted to kill him. But this guy you were planning asked to have hanged today and impaled and killed. Go out and honor him in the city. He is devastated by this. He comes back and he's invited to this banquet Queen Esther's throwing where he gets hung or impaled on the pole that was meant for Mordecai last week. That was chapter 7. So here we are in chapter 8. Everybody go. How many know that Esther and Mordecai have to be feeling pretty good about now? Because just a little earlier, Esther thought, man, I'm going to go to this psychopath king and ask him for a favor, and I'm uninvited. I could die. How many know that stress you out? Like, how would you feel if you're a kid here today? And you're like, I'm going to go ask mom and dad something, and if they don't like hearing from me, they will kill me. That stress you out. I could die. Mordecai. Now his enemy's hanging on the pole that was meant for him. I mean, no, he probably feels pretty good too. So let's pick up Esther chapter 8. And um, I think this is an important lesson for Crossings Church. I think it has some things to say to us today. It says, that same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman. Hot dog. The enemy of the Jews. Now, this is a big deal. Haman was number two in the kingdom. Haman had cash. This wasn't like he gave me a track home in the neighborhood. Gave the estate of Haman. I heard that uh, Bill Gates has bought some like 25,000 acres in Tonopah to build a smart city. Who's heard of that? I just heard it today. It would be like Bill Gates dying and leaving you Tonopah. After it's developed. <laughs> People were upset at that first quote. Like, wow, that's mean. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king for Esther had told him he was related to her. So Mord now Mordecai's brought in as well. The king took off his signet ring. Whoa, signet ring. Haman used to have the signet ring. Here's what the signet ring was. It was his... I, it had to look like a Super Bowl ring. This is what I'm thinking. You look like a champion walking around with that. But what was really important about the signet ring was the face. Because if you were to melt wax on a letter and put that signet ring into the wax, it was the seal of the king, which meant it was law. So let's say you wanted to buy something really nice. You melt a little wax. Psh, it was like having an Amex, it's Onyx, or whatever, the that's beyond platinum, it's the black one. You could spend some cash, you had power. So now Haman has the signet ring. And he presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. How many can say Esther and Haman are rolling? Oh, Sorry. Esther and Mordecai, thank you very much. Esther and Mordecai are doing well now, aren't they? These guys are doing great because they have, they've been saved, right? 
They're no longer hanging on the pole. They have been blessed, crazy blessed. Now they own Haman's estate. Uh, Mordecai and Esther have this great piece of property. And now they have, not only that, but they're empowered. They have this ring. They have a credit card to back it all up. They are rolling. They're doing great. I would have to think at this point, they went from like, oh, uptight to, whoo. How many can feel that? Just, I'm not hanging on that pole. I got money in the bank. I got a house. I got power. How many would be tempted to like go redecorate Haman's old place? Like, that'd be the first thing I would do. I'd be like, I'm going to redecorate Haman. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to remove Haman from that because he was on the pole in the front yard, 75 feet high. That, you don't want that in your front yard. So I'd get rid of Haman and pr- probably put in you know, the finishing touches. How, how many probably paint it? Move some walls? Watch a few episodes? Binge watch HGTV to get some ideas? A little time on Pinterest, and then you go crazy on that thing. That'd be tempting, because you had the ring, you could pay for it. It'd be awesome. But that isn't what happens. What happens is just radical. What happens catches my attention and causes me to just back up a second and think about my life. Because the truth is, I think all of us are a little bit like Esther and Mordecai in a few areas. In the very areas that we listed here. One is this. If you know the gospel message about Jesus and you've believed that in your heart, you're saved. You're rescued today. Last week we talked about Haman was make, set up a pole to hang Mordecai on. And that pole had Mordecai's name on it. He was going to die. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He was in trouble. And now all of a sudden, someone else is on that pole for him. And we talked about last week that the great news in salvation is this. Sin has earned every one of us death. There's no way around it. You can try to be good. You could keep your lawn better than your neighbors. You could pay all your taxes. You could treat everybody well. But if you have a debt of sin, I could promise you this. You are in trouble. It brings death to your life and eternal separation from God. It is a bad deal. It is like walking around looking at your death sins all the time. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was punishment with our name on it, and Jesus took our cross. And he died on that for us. And today, just like Esther and Mordecai, we can say too, we're saved. We're forgiven, and we're free. Your name is written in God's book, and he knows you. I mean, no, that's good news. I love the fact that we're rescued today. I love the fact that uh, I have salvation. I can know that if I die, 
It's not based upon how good was I this week or was I better than you or you or you. It's because Jesus died for me. He showed God's love for me and that he died for me. And by me putting my faith and you putting your faith in that simple yet profound truth, you're forgiven and free. You're saved today. You belong to God. Thank God for that. I love that truth. We're saved just like those guys. I'm going to go further. We're not only saved, we're blessed. Now, some places when you say blessed, it's like you're blessed. Okay? You're blessed today. Now, sometimes we don't talk about this a lot in church because people have abused this idea of being blessed. Some have said, hey, if you come to Jesus, God's going to bless your life with like a new car and a new house and lots of money, fat stacks of cash, and you're going to get along with your spouse every day, and you're always going to be healthy, and everything, everything's going to go perfectly fine. How many live in that right now? Right, exactly. Andy, I'm going to get you later. We're going to unbless you. Uh, uh, but the truth is, it's far better than that kind of stuff because all those things can be taken from you. The Bible says, blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are counted against them no more. Psalms 32 says, there's someone that's blessed. Someone that's blessed has their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Someone that's blessed has the knowledge that God loves them. And, and there is a blessing that we share in this room that's more priceless than all the money in the world. God's peace, God's joy, God, the fruit of the Spirit that lives in the life of the believer. The, the fact that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are blessed, so blessed. God has brought so much into your life, into my life, that if we were to sit this Thanksgiving week and just try to calculate, enumerate all the blessings of God in our life, we'd run out of ink and paper. We're blessed. God's so good to us. I'll say, even beyond that, I found a thing to be true. It's not always money, but sometimes it is. It seems like the more God does to our characters to make us choose good things instead of bad things, the more you have good things in your life. It just makes sense. When people get their financial life in order and uh, they tithe and they honor God and they stop going into debt and they, they're generous, it seems like they have $5 left over at the end of the paycheck instead of they owe 5 to the credit card company. And before long, you see that person like, do a little better. How many can say because you make godly decisions, there are some things in your life that just naturally go better? It, it works that way. Get this. If you don't cheat, there aren't people wanting to kill you for cheating. There, there are some blessings that take place in your life just because you begin to honor God and you begin to do the right things. You start looking around and you're like, wow, that's going fairly well over here. Wow, that's better than it used to be. And and there are tangible things that begin to go better because when you obey God and you walk in righteousness, it lines things up to where they work the right way. It's an amazing thing. 
get up and go to work every day and don't spend more than you make, before long it starts looking right. Another thing we are, that's just like them, is we're empowered. You got that signet ring that could, that could buy things, that could have authority to get things done. And many of us, we, we don't talk about this, but you weren't just saved from hell. That's a good thing to be saved from, I think. You weren't just saved from living a leaky life with bad morals and principles that you can't contain the blessings of God because you make bad decisions. You weren't just saved from that, but you were also saved for God's glory. Get this, when you were saved, the Bible says you were made a new creature in Christ Jesus. That the Holy Spirit literally came when you, when you believed in your heart this message of the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again from the dead and lives to give us life and it's coming again one day. When you believe that message, something of a transformative nature happened in your life. You were made new by the power of the Holy Spirit that now not only transformed you, but lives in you. God the Holy Spirit leads you, directs you, guides you. He empowers you. He gives you gifts to use for his glory. It's not some static thing where you just changed your status from, saved to, uh, from unsaved to saved. He now dwells in you. And he gives you the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And he will rebuke and correct you and all these wonderful things that the Holy Spirit does in the believer's life that so many times we ignore, but they're empowering. That he's with you every moment. And we can say, God, would you direct me? Would you guide me? Would you give me wisdom? Would you empower me to make a difference? So here's what's wild to me. They've got all this they're saved, they're blessed, and they're empowered. At this point, one would think there would be this great temptation to be like, let's just hunker down in Haman's former estate, redecorate it, and we're good to go. How many feel like you'd want to live that way? And that's what some of us do. We experience salvation and we experience the blessings of God and we experience his nearness and somehow we, we step off the line. We quit being hardcore, you might say, or we quit being willing to risk. We stop being the Esther of chapter 4 that says, if I die, I die. I'm going to lay it all on the line. We lose that that savage element that says, I refuse to be civilized or tamed. I'm going to be used by God still, even in my salvation, even in my blessed state, even in my empowerment, all the good things God's given to me. I'm willing to lay them right back on the line again so as to be used by God. And that's what happens in Esther chapter three, uh, 8, verse 3. It says, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. There's something that's profound about this. Okay. 
when she fell at his feet and pled, she literally put her life right back on the line. Because later in verse 4, it says, then he extended the golden scepter. Which meant, okay, you can live. Because what you did, if I don't extend this golden scepter, just killed you. What you did at falling at my feet to ask me something is worth death. You could have died right here, but here, let me put the golden scepter out. Okay, now you can talk. She risked everything. She put it all on the line and said, I'm going to be like the girl I was when God challenged me in chapter 4 where I came to this crossroads and said, okay, I'm the queen, but I'm willing to lay it on the line and my life's at risk, but if I die, I die. I'm going to go for it. And now things have moved in her life and things have changed and she is saved and she has been blessed beyond measure and there's empowerment in her life and she could step back right then and be saved and blessed and secure and it's all good right here. My stuff's good. But she says, no, I'm willing to risk something for somebody else. And there's this thing in us that when we experience the goodness of God in our lives, we start to say, hey, let me protect. Let me start guarding stuff. If I build big enough fences, if I, if I build big enough boundaries, then, then I can keep the good things God's given to me. But the truth is, God's still calling his people to step out and lay it all on the line. Don't let his blessings, don't let his goodness become the thing you worship. I believe like Esther every day, we're supposed to lay those things on the line and say, God, my whole life is yours. My next minute, every cent I've made, my comforts, my empowerment, everything I am is yours, God, and I'm willing to lay it down again for your glory. For Esther, God's glory was in her fulfilling what she was called to do. She was safe, but everybody outside those palace walls were still had a death sentence on them. They still were facing death. And can I say this? There are a lot of people that aren't in your position today. They're not saved. They don't know God's blessings. They don't know what it is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And yet they live outside our walls. And the temptation is, is for us to just say, hey, we're good to go. I, I just need to be concerned about my family. But there are so many people that need to know that God loves them. And that God can change their equation. Esther goes on. She says... If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. Verse 6, this is interesting. She says, for how can I bear to see disaster fall on my own people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? So she, 
She lays it on the line. And I want to say that the first step to laying it on the line is we have to become a people that will, again, begin to plead. Crossings Church, we need to pray like people we love's lives depend upon it. We need to pray and ask God for people in our community and people in our families and people in the, our schools. Do you realize tomorrow at 8 o'clock in the morning, these schools will be filled with students? I would dare say that if we were to walk the halls and ask young people if they understood what the gospel was, that likely most of them would not even be able to articulate why God loves them, and how they would find the love of God for their own lives. And we have to be people that would say, that's not okay in our day. It's not okay for that to go down. It just isn't right for us to meet in their auditorium and yet not get to a place where we plead with God and say, God, I don't even know some of these kids, but would you give us Desert Edge High School? Would you give us Cotton Flower Neighborhood? Would you give us our gyms and our workplaces? To get to a place where we begin to not just politely ask God, but be like Esther and say, I'm going to plead with God. And I'm going to ask him to do something that's not happening right now. Your prayers make a difference. Your prayers change the course of things. But the draw of this place of safety, the draw of this like, I want to protect the marbles in my pile, will keep us from praying prayers that change our equation. I believe that if we prayed, things happen. Jesus said it this simple, you have not because you ask not. If we pray, it changes things. The other thing that happened to her, she says, how can I bear we see that Esther not only prayed, but she prayed with a passion, prayed with a heart. I find sometimes the way I can protect my marbles is if, if I don't care about somebody or something, it's easier for me not to be generous. It's easy for, easier for me not to risk having a conversation where I might look like the religious nut because I'm, I brought Jesus into the conversation. It's easier for me not to be inconvenienced and, and spend time with someone that may have some real problems. It's a lot easier if I don't have a heart for them. But I found something to be true. If I begin to pray for someone or some group of people or a place, I begin, God doesn't change, but he changes my heart. And I don't see people the same way that I once did. And I don't see a school like I did once. And I don't see a community like I once did. I begin to see them the way our Heavenly Father sees them. And you'll begin to see them the same way too. And the end result will be you'll live with a broken heart for those who are lost that Jesus loves. You'll quit praying dry, cold prayers, and you'll start praying prayers that are broken and desperate, that could fall under the category of pleading. Why? Because you care more about them than the things God brought to your life. I believe God's called us. When did the church get so civilized? And let me explain it this way. We, 
We clean everything up. At this point, Esther and Mordecai had the perfect out. They could have said, yeah, we lived a life of royalty. We nailed it. But she, she refused to just go in that direction. And she says, I'm going to break the customs. I'm going to break the ordinary. I'm going to make things a little uncomfortable for the king, for everybody around. I'm going to fall right at his feet. And I'm going to plead with this guy without permission, thus risking my life. But it's worth it. And I feel like in the church, sometimes we, we lose our passion. We lose our ability to say, God, make me a little undignified. God, make me uncomfortable with the way things are. Put in my heart a passion, a burden to pray till something happens in these situations. And God, if you would use me to, to bring up the conversation, maybe some of you need to take that chance and risk inviting a friend this Christmas season to a church service. Maybe some of you need to take that chance and risk saying, hey, I know you're going through a tough time. Let me pray for you. Maybe some of you that know the gospel would take the chance and say, let me share some scriptures that talk about the hope of God in your life and, and walk them through what Jesus has done for them. But it's going to be costly because you're going to have a threshold to walk over and you're going you're to risk losing some things. Maybe you've built a reputation and people think you're cool. Let me tell you, you're not. Just that easy. You're not as cool as you think you are. So just get that out of your head and share the love of God. Maybe some of you think if you gave X, X amount of dollars to fund an outreach or to buy Thanksgiving baskets or to support kids on the train track on the other side of the world, that somehow you're losing. But let me tell you, you're not. When we lay it on the line for his glory, we'll never look foolish. Maybe in the eyes of men. But I would rather be thought a fool in the eyes of men, but heroic in the sight of God every single time. Because one day we'll all cash out. But it's what we do now. I'll tell you something. We'll inside baseball talk real quick. Um, I, I never want us to lose our edge as a church. Uh, we're talking and praying. There's a group talking and praying. One day we'll be in a building. How many know that would be fun? Building would be fun. But we can't do it at the expense of losing our edge. I'd rather be with a bunch of savages in Jesus than to get cozy. God save us from that. I'd rather go out swinging for Jesus on the street than being a cathedral asleep. I would much rather go out saying, God, help us not lose our edge. Help us live with a passion, God. Help us live untamed for you. Help us be the people that say, yeah, I got salvation, and I'm blessed, and I'm empowered, but I'm throwing them right down today because I'd rather die than not do what God's called me to do. I'd rather cash out than live an apathetic, half-speed life. God help me. We looked at one building the other day. I want to tell you guys something. If you're part of Crossings Church, the genesis of this place is savage. We're called to be a little wild here. We're not called to be tame. If you're looking for a church where you're going to be comfortable, it's just not us.
If you're looking for dignified, look at me. It's gone already. I visited a church, a space that we're looking at, and it's a beautiful place. It really is. And I don't know. It may, it may not happen. It's, it's all cool because we got a job to do, right? We do that wherever we need to. But they had a baptistry inside the place. It was cool. A little tank with water in it, and you could baptize people. And my inner, in my inside, I growled. No. It's like, what is that stupid thing there for? Because we don't baptize people in some hidden place. We do it outside where God is, like in the Zarni's pool. We hit rivers. We hit all kinds of silly places. Have a soup pie. We go all over the place and baptize people. Why? Because it's what we do. We're always going to be the church that says, let's, let's win people for Jesus. But there has to be some things that heat up in us to have this happen. Guys, I think we'll have a building. It will be in the wake of passionate believers that say, we're in this for Jesus. And we're a group of people that's willing to lay some things down and be a little uncomfortable from time to time to see God's glory brought about in our lives and in our community. And we'll be people that begin to develop a heart for Desert Edge and for Millennial Millennium High School and for uh, the schools in Buckeye. And we'll, we'll have hearts for our neighborhoods and our communities. It'll be in that way that we see things happen. But a few things do have to happen. We have to be people that begin to plead with God. We don't pray enough. We got to pray more. I have a prayer meeting every Saturday night, 5 o'clock at my house, 5 to 6. You're invited. Come and pray. We need to pray more. If you're in a small group, you pray with that small group. What we need more than anything is people in their prayer closets where we don't see when and where you're praying. But we need to pray. How can I say, how can you say we need to pray more? Because I know me. And I know you, and sometimes we have this draw to the comfortable. And I know when I'm praying, God begins to change my perspective on those around me. And my, my heart begins to break with some things, and it drives us to action. And I can't look at the world with a cold-hearted lens when I'm praying, and neither can you. We need to become a people that's more invested in the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Did you know that if you're a Christian, again, it's not a change of status or a check of the box, that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, lives in you. And that's when things come alive like that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you because the power of God himself, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And we need to become aware of him and his presence and to keep in step with the Spirit of God. We need to be people of the Word of God. Be people that understand His Word and dig in His Word. And we need to crank up the evangelistic temperature in this place by about 10 degrees or 100 degrees. I don't know, a lot. When Jesus comes back, I want us to be that group of people that said, Lord, we cared about people. We cared about people. We loved them enough to have our hearts broken for him and to get close to him and to risk looking like a fool and to risk inconvenience and to risk treasure and time 
in winning those you love. I want to be like Esther. This radical girl that had everything in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, and then turn right around and risk it all again. I want us to keep being that people where we've never arrived. Where we're constantly saying, yeah, I'll lay it right back down again. For your glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And Lord, I pray in my own life where there's areas of uh, unbelief, there's areas of doubt, or where I've desired the comfortable over the joy of running with you, Lord, would you forgive me? Lord, would you forgive us, Lord, where we've let sin block this and we've let complacency rule? Lord, would you light a fire in our hearts for the lost? Would you light a fire in our hearts, Lord, for those that need you? Lord, we do trust that everything this church needs, you'll provide. But Lord, let us need it while we're fighting for you. Lord, do a work in our hearts, we pray. Transform us. Wake us up, Father. Use us to your glory in these days we have.